Like Irish legends George Gipp and Knut Rockne, great things often come in pairs. Onward to Victory is proud to pair with WCScreens.com, where you can get custom screen printing and embroidery at wholesale prices. You'll never have to call an Audible. They ship nationwide and can always save you or your company money. WCScreens.com Today on Onward to Victory, we talk about the possible origins of the Fighting Irish nickname. When was it first used? And by whom? The answer may surprise you. In order to find it, we have to journey back to what was, at the time, Notre Dame's most famous game in program history. Buckle up those leather helmets, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Football fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and I am the host of this show, and this is episode number 47. Thank you all for tuning into the show today, and as I sit to record this one, and for you all to listen, I suppose we are less than seven weeks until the Fighting Irish kick off their 2021 campaign against the Florida State Seminoles down in Tallahassee. Now that is hard to believe, but obviously incredibly exciting. If you're a Midwesterner like me, or even if you live in Indiana as I do, not only does fall bring football season, but also, without a doubt, hands down, take it straight to the bank. The very best weather of the calendar year. Anyway, thank you for being here with me today, and I hope you had an opportunity to listen to the last episode, cleverly titled That 80s Show, about the Jerry Faust-led Notre Dame teams of the early 1980s. For reasons we discussed, it's definitely a time in Notre Dame history that tends to get glossed over, but as we found out, that doesn't mean it's not endearing to listen and to learn about. So go give it a go if you haven't already. And uh, there are some bonus bits for you lovers of 1980s culture as well. A special thank you to the Consensus All-Americans, the individuals who monetarily support the show. My pals Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, and Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana. As I've said on the show in the past, I wouldn't be surprised if either of these men actually did indeed bleed blue and gold. But thank you so much for your support over the months and actually over the years at this point. So if you're interested in learning how to become a consensus All-American yourself, email the show at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com or hang out until show wrap and I'll tell you all about it. As you may have picked up on during the show intro, Onward to Victory has entered a partnership with a new sponsor, West Coast Screen Printing. Make sure you give these guys a call for quality, affordable screen printing and embroidery jobs, both big and small. Please support those who, again, support the show and visit wcscreens.com. So why are we here today? Well, we are going to talk about the origins of Notre Dame's Fighting Irish nickname. We have danced around this topic quite a bit in past episodes, including episode 27 titled, What's in a Name? Released in July of 2020, about a year ago. 
That's where we discuss the social differences between the Fighting Irish as a nickname and how it relates to, yes, but also simply cannot be compared to the Native American mascot controversies. So today we are going to look at the origins of the name and what was really going on in program history around that time. And I can't lie, I got really interested in this question while doing some unrelated research on the Irish for a different project. But even as early as 1901, 1902, and 1903, the football team was routinely referred to as the Blue and Gold, or inversely, the Gold and Blue. Which I thought was really interesting, as that is obviously something they are still called today. So I figured, why not figure out the first documented instance when they were called the Fighting Irish as well. I'm sure I couldn't have been the only one to ask this question, but it took quite a bit of old-fashioned gumshoeing, but I do assure you, you will have a satisfactory answer by the end of this episode. All right, let's set the stage a little bit, as we like to do a lot around here. The university, of course, was founded in the Indiana wilderness in November of 1842 by a tenacious Frenchman named Father Edward Soren. And at the time, South Bend was certainly not a city. In fact, it was hardly even a town. When the census taker came to South Bend eight years later, in 1850, there were still less than 1,700 inhabitants. So it was obviously even smaller in 1842. Some have actually likened South Bend when Soren got there as a trading post. But Notre Dame is, of course, short for Notre Dame du Lac which is French for Our Lady of the Lake. Pardon me, my French is very weak. But that, of course, serves as a reminder that the school that is, of course, has been a beacon of Irish sentiment and imagery has a distinctively French background. Interestingly enough, Father Soren himself had a bit of prejudice against the Irish as a young priest. He had once claimed that they were not, quote, obedient by nature. But he, of course, came to accept them by virtue of it wasn't long after the school's founding that the campus was full of Irish immigrants, or children of Irish immigrants, that is. And as we have touched on in previous episodes, shortly after Soren founded Notre Dame, there was actually three departments. The Minims, which were the elementary age students, the Junior Department for junior high and high school age students, and of course the Senior Department for the Collegiates. Theoretically, then, one could enter Notre Dame at this time, at the age of six, and stay until he, because Notre Dame was, of course, all male at this time, was 22, which is pretty wild, really. But I was talking to a Notre Dame archivist over something kind of unrelated uh, just this past week, and I asked, how many students actually did that? Started as minims and went all the way through college. Though he said the number wasn't great, that number did exist, but I have been asked in the past, why would Notre Dame have a minimum department? Why would it be a junior high and a high school on top of a college? Why was the college established in such a fashion, I suppose? But the early years of Notre Dame were fraught with many difficulties, not the least of which was financial. So not only did allowing younger students to receive their education at Notre Dame, allow for additional revenue to the young university, but it also did kind of establish, as we mentioned a moment ago, an enrollment funnel for students to populate the college, even if that number wasn't large. So yes, the school's early days are very interesting, but we have a job to do here, and that is to determine the origin of the fighting Irish. So it's true that both the 69th New York Infantry of the Irish Brigade 
during the American Civil War were nicknamed the Fighting Irish, and that the Irish Brigade's chaplain was future president of Notre Dame, Father William Corby. But that still doesn't necessarily explain the coinage of the Fighting Irish for the athletic teams, more particularly the football team. Though again, the tie between Corby, the Irish Brigade, and the University are indelible. In fact, one of the most popular episodes of the show is about just that, Father William Corby. So there is a legend, and from my vantage point, that's probably all it is, is that during an 1889 game against Northwestern in Evanston, the Northwestern student section were hollering, kill those fighting Irishmen. Not for nothing, Notre Dame did win that game 9-0, and that kill those fighting Irishmen instance at Northwestern is actually an anecdote that still prevails to this day on the official school website, which I found uh, pretty interesting, I guess. But, however, I wanted to find where fighting Irishmen was used outside of oral tradition. I wanted to find it in print, in a primary source, if you will, so something that was published at the time. So I ran over to my trusty newspapers.com account where I searched for instances that contained both Notre Dame and Fighting Irish. Predictably, hundreds of thousands of results popped up. So after doing some resorting and categorizing, I believe I had found the first one. So, thinking I was rather clever, I grabbed show favorite book, Murray Sperber's history of the program called Shake Down the Thunder, to see if he had also mentioned it. Of course, he did reference the exact instance I had found in his book. But alas, friends, not to be deterred, I was still determined to make an episode out of this. Not in the least, because it was centered around the most famous game in program history for the first quarter century of Notre Dame football. You might even say the phrase Fighting Irish sprang out of the program's first big-time signature win. So let's get to it. November 7th, 1909, one day after Notre Dame scored the biggest victory in program history over the Michigan Wolverines in Ann Arbor, the Detroit Free Press ran a headline that trumpeted, U of M outplayed and beaten by Notre Dame 11. Okay, very cool, very flattering, but it was the secondary headline that caught my eye. Shorty Longman's Fighting Irishman Humble the Wolverines to tune of 11-3. As best as I believe anyone has been able to find, this was the first documented instance that the words fighting and Irish were used to describe the Notre Dame football team. Though the nickname would not be formally adopted as the team's official name until 1927, they would be sometimes referred to as the Irish in the press after this, much more frequently. Due to an anti-immigrant sentiment that gripped much of the nation during this time, the Irish heritage wasn't always portrayed as a positive. In fact, the team was also referred to as the Dirty Irish or even the Dumb Mix by opposing team fans and the press corps alike. Before the name Fighting Irish was formally adopted. They also went by the Ramblers, the Rovers, or even the Hoosiers when playing out-of-state teams. 
So let's peel off some layers about this 1909 season though. What was so special about this victory? Why would an opposing paper pay Notre Dame with the compliment of being fighting Irishmen? So just so we can orient our timeline a bit, again, something I think we do really well here, this was exactly the season before a Norwegian immigrant named Knut Rockney arrived in South Bend. So the 1909 team was really, really good. <laughs> in fact, in the three seasons leading into 1909, the team logged a tidy 22-1 record. So 20 wins, two losses, and a tie. Their only losses? Indiana and bitter, hated rival, the Michigan Wolverines. Yes, so perhaps contrary to popular belief, Notre Dame had actually experienced quite a bit of success on the football field before Rockney arrived on the scene in 1910 as a player. And then, of course, he would join the coaching staff after his playing days were over. But back to these bitter, hated rivals. I am guessing that Notre Dame had a bit of an inferiority complex when it came to Michigan during this time. Or they definitely had to have felt like Michigan's little brother on the gridiron. So let me briefly explain this. The very first game of Notre Dame football, and I mean ever, was played back on November 22, 1887 in South Bend against, you guessed it, Michigan. And guess what? It was very cordial. I guess if we were to think about it in modern terms, it would have resembled less of a game and perhaps more of a clinic. No one expected Notre Dame to beat the much more experienced Wolverine Gritters. And the game was an 8-0 win for Michigan. And again, the contest was just much more to teach Notre Dame the finer points of the game. But as I mentioned, it was cordial. After the game was over, the Michigan and Notre Dame teams actually sat together in the cafeteria and had a real nice dinner. So it was friendly. But... As Notre Dame's program continued to slowly build for the rest of the 19th century and then into the turn of the 20th century, they still couldn't beat the Wolverines. In fact, after two losses to the Maize and Blue in 1888, Notre Dame couldn't even register any points against Michigan during their 1898, 1899, 1900, 1902, or 1908 games. Remember the pigskin magician himself, fullback, Mr. Lewis Salmon, better known as Red? Yeah, the one who was absolutely brilliant and Notre Dame's first ever Walter Camp All-American? Despite his best efforts, not even he could find any pay dirt against Michigan, famously carrying the ball 15 straight times for 80 yards in 1902 before falling and slipping on the five-yard line because the field was absolutely a, a, it was a mess. So not only he could register any points, but the Wolverines, uh, since 1901 anyway, had been led by college football visionary Fielding Yost. That season, Yost became nationally famous for coaching the point-per-minute Michigan teams. They outscored their opponents in 1901, 550 to zero. Whew, that was done in only 10 games, mind you. But needless to say, the next year in 1902, again, Red Salmon and Notre Dame were elated 
to have only lost to Michigan by a 23-0 score. Again, that is the same game where Red carried the ball 15 straight plays, just in an effort to get some points on the board. But how could I be so sure that they would have been elated to only lose by 23 points? Well, that Notre Dame game in 1902 was sandwiched between Michigan's 60-0 victory over Indiana and an 86-0 victory over Ohio State. A game I'm sure they're still talking about in Ann Arbor, particularly these days. So, to be fair, Michigan at least would have considered Notre Dame their scrappy, plucky younger brother. But regardless, heading into 1909, Michigan had won the first eight meetings between the schools. But, did I mention Notre Dame had a really, really good team in 1909? And, not for nothing, they were coached by a former Fielding Yost player named Frank Longman. Longman, who went by Shorty, was in his early 30s when he took the Notre Dame job in 1909, but he had actually played fullback for Yost from 1903 through 1905. So, on all of those point-a-minute teams. So, heading into the November 6th, 1909 game, both teams boasted an identical 4-0 record. But at halftime of the game, Michigan fans, players, and perhaps even Yost himself had to have been pinching themselves. The scoreboard read, Notre Dame 5, Michigan 3. And then we actually get some more mythology to enter the arena here. So supposedly at halftime, Notre Dame fullback Pete Vaughn, who was in the midst of one of his the best games of his career, yelled out to his teammates, what's the matter with you guys? You're all Irish, and you're not fighting worth a lick. Again, probably mythology, but perhaps someone in the press corps who was standing nearby worked it into their article. Who knows? And not to try to poke holes in any story, but I have found it interesting that when, at least how I have read it in multiple locations, is that Vaughn's speech was delivered when Notre Dame was trailing at halftime of the game, which I thought was interesting because they weren't. They were actually winning 5-3. to three. But it was this speech that then galvanized the men for the second half. And again, even Notre Dame's own website, maybe this is why I was a little bit skeptical earlier when I was talking about Notre Dame's website, but the website stated that the speech, quote, it inspired a furious comeback, end quote, in a story about the origins of the fighting Irish name. Again, when I read comeback, to me, and probably for all of you, that insinuates the team was trailing at halftime, which again, not true. But the Irish went into halftime with the lead, and that's a lead they would never give up, and they won the football game 11-3. to So from my vantage point, the game, this game in particular, this 1909 victory against Michigan would probably be eclipsed as far as fame for the Notre Dame program by that 1913 Army game where Gus Duray and Rockney himself just completely took that game over with the forward pass. And you probably know the story, but again, words can't express just how big of news this was in the sports world. I mean, Notre Dame was still considered a very small player in the national college football landscape. So This was a victory that kind of catapulted them into much more serious considerations as it pertained to 
you know, the national discussion surrounding some of the powerhouses of college football. And while Yost's teams weren't unbeatable, so to speak, they didn't really lose to teams they shouldn't have lost to, which is kind of how Notre Dame was most certainly considered. And so just a quirk, a quick quirk that I found in the box score of this Notre Dame-Michigan game, one of the referees for the game was none other than professional baseball player Jake Stahl. He'd actually win a World Series three years later as the player-manager of the Boston Red Sox. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And of note, aside from the efforts of Vaughn, halfback Harry Miller, better known to his pals as Red, enjoyed a really nice game as well. If you were to really think about the first family of Notre Dame football, in my humble opinion, unless I am forgetting someone, the Millers have to take the cake. So you had Red, again, who was a dynamic halfback for Notre Dame during this time. And he was actually the team captain the previous year. So he was obviously one of the better players, you know, pre-Rockney, so to speak. But Red's younger brother was none other than Don Miller, who was, of course, one of the famed four horsemen of the 1924 season. And then Red's son was Creighton Miller, who was an All-American for Notre Dame for Frank Leahy in 1943. Yeah, that's quite a lineage there. So anyway, if I can expound upon that headline from earlier a bit, the first paragraph of the story went something like this. 11 fighting Irishmen wrecked the Yost machine this afternoon. These sons of Aaron, individually and collectively, representing the University of Notre Dame, not only beat the Michigan team, but they dashed some of Michigan's fondest hopes and shattered Michigan's fairest dreams, end quote. So not only do you have the bit again about the fighting Irishmen, but the article actually doubled down by calling them the sons of Aaron, another nod to the perceived or actual Irish lineage of much of the team. So again, though the Notre Dame football team would not formally adopt the Fighting Irish as their official nickname for nearly two decades, one has to look at this instance and this game as kind of the origin for it. And Michigan was pretty sore about this game, in no small part because of Coach Shorty Longman's behavior afterwards. So Longman actually kept his Ann Arbor home, and he went back to it during the offseason. And like any good pet owner, Longman would take his dog Mike on long walks around town. Uh, just as a quick note, Longman really liked his dog Mike. Liked him so much, in fact, he was kind of the unofficial mascot for the 1909 Notre Dame football team, so much so that Longman included a photo of him, that's Mike, that is, the dog, on the 1909 Notre Dame football postcard. So there is that. But so Longman would take Mike on walks around Ann Arbor. But Shorty had a special sweater made for Mike with the numbers 11 to 3 stitched on the side of it. Some people might have thought it was humorous, but... Others probably less so. But for that reason, and a few others, in 1910, which I'll save for a future episode, the two teams, Notre Dame and Michigan, wouldn't meet on the football field 
for over three decades after the 1909 game. Shorty Longman would coach Notre Dame to a 4-1-1 and record in 1910, but he would depart the program shortly thereafter. So make no mistake, this was the biggest victory in Notre Dame history at this time. And again, it was through this game that you find the earliest mention of the football team and the phrase, the Fighting Irish, together in print. Pretty cool, right? I'll be right back. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that, or at least enjoyed it a fraction of as much as I enjoyed putting it all together. But I wanted to take this time here really quickly just to thank you once again, yes, you, for tuning in to learn just a little bit more about the fascinating history of Notre Dame football. I love telling this, and you could probably pick up on that, but honestly, I wouldn't have been able to continue to tell it unless we had folks like you who were interested in learning a little bit more. So seriously, wherever it is that you're listening from or whatever it is your background is, or whether you're just a football fan or you're a diehard Notre Dame fan, or you know what, yesterday you just decided to start liking Notre Dame football. First of all, you've made a great choice, but I am really appreciative that everyone is here and that you continue to enjoy these episodes. So yeah, you've probably picked up on the fact that, yeah, I have a, I'm pretty partial to these pre-Rockney teams. That's not, of course, because I don't love everything that came with Rockney and after, but it's these teams and a lot of these players that I feel like, you know, for obvious reasons, and this is not just, I guess, Notre Dame, but across college football, but I feel like they get glossed over quite a bit in history. So it's really nice to just be able to resurrect, in a sense, some of these stories and teams and names and rivalries. So I hope you, again, did enjoy that. But I want to thank WCScreens.com for sponsoring the show, for joining the team, for joining the family. Please visit the website. Again, WCScreens.com to see everything they have to offer in screen printing and embroidery and how they can get you, your company, or your gathering, or whatever it may be, outfitted properly and saving some money. Also, again, a warm and special thank you to my pals, Consensus All-Americans, Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, and Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana. If you are interested in becoming a Consensus All-American yourself, again, this is that special sect of show listeners who support the show monetarily, please visit paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or head over to patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast for options with ongoing monthly support. Please know how much it is appreciated and truly keeps this show powered and appreciated and running. So don't forget to like and subscribe to the show, however it is that you listen. If you have an iPhone in your hand, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Hit So again, hit that purple podcast icon, subscribe, and be alerted to all the new episodes. Same with Spotify. 
Also, if you find it in your heart, please rate the podcast as a five-star show on Apple Podcasts. It may seem insignificant, but it does help the show be found when people search for Notre Dame content over the vastness of the internet. So jump over to the Facebook page for all the latest updates as well. In fact, that's actually where I funnel most of the major updates for the show. So make sure if you're of the Facebook persuasion, you jump over and you like the Facebook page. So what's coming down the pike? Well, I'm glad you asked. So I will be talking with Bill Fuller, author of the historical fiction book called Forever Year about George Gipp and his relationship with a certain Iris Trapeer over the last year of Gipp's life. I am, I'm not going to spoil it because I am really excited to speak with Bill about it. But look up the book again. Just jump onto Google. It's called Forever Year. And I actually read it and it was a very enjoyable read. So I will review it here on the next episode and I will be sharing our conversation that we have on the next episode as well. And if you're a show veteran, well, you know, this show is quite fond of George Gipp. So having the opportunity to have this conversation with someone who studied Gipp extensively. I think that's what I took away most from the book is that it felt so authentic to everything I ever thought about Gipp and his character and how, I don't know, I guess he was just at odds with himself in the sense that he was very charming. He was very outgoing. People were attracted to him like a magnet, but yet he didn't really have any close friends and he kind of kept everyone at arm's length and he was kind of a loner. And I guess when you think about it in terms of football, he was an absolutely electrifying football player, but he never really seemed to care much about it. So anyways, for all of these reasons, I'm really excited to speak with Bill. And so be sure to check in to the next episode. So uh, in addition, it's that time, football fans, the third annual Onward to Victory season preview episode will also drop in August. So I will be previewing every position group uh, all the games on the schedule, it's going to be great. And it's always one of the more popular things the show does. So I'm chomping at the bit for it. So be on the lookout for that as well. Going to be a busy next month or so. But in the meantime, I had better sign off. So this has been another episode of Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish.